0: Hello and welcome to episode three of In the Dirt from the Gravel Ride Podcast. I'm your host, Craig Dalton. I'll be joined shortly by my co-host Randall Jacobs. Each week we dive into the latest and greatest in the gravel world and try to offer you some perspective on how to choose your next ride. We'd like this show to be driven by you. So if you have any products you'd like us to look at or technologies you'd like us to explore, we've set up a phone number at 415. 843-1701. Just leave us a voicemail or feel free to shoot me a note on social media or via email at craig at bike. The technology supporting this show is supported by you. You can make a contribution at buymeacoffee.com slash thegravelride if we're adding value to your weekly rides. With that, let's dive right into this week's show. Randall, how you doing this week? Uh,
1: I, I'm doing okay. Not as great as I was when I was out in Mont Shasta. I'm back in San Francisco. It's definitely a a different vibe, but okay overall. How about yourself, Craig? Yeah, I'm
0: doing all right. I still haven't been able to ride outside. I'm still nursing those bruised ribs, but Mm. I've been taking advantage of my Peloton in the garage and using that, which is nice to at least spin the legs, but I was... I was telling the wife, I, I just need to get out in the woods and that's got to happen this weekend or I'm going to go nuts.
1: Yeah, I mean, at least get out for a walk or, you know, just a, just a tree bath. There's, uh, you know, now that I'm back in the city, um, I'm definitely feeling a, a, the same sort of like urge to be out in nature.
0: I bet. I bet. Well, fortunately, there's been a couple of new bikes that have come across my desk over the last week to to look at. So... The one that's been on my mind is from uh, – I believe they're based out of South Africa from a company called FAR, F-A-R-R. And it's their their gravel monster, their GMX. And it's a aluminum frame, so a 6061 aluminum frame that runs 29er wheels.
1: Yeah. I mean this is – I'm looking at the specs on this thing. It's a – Full-on drop bar mountain bike, like the geometry, the tire clearance. It's like two niner by two point two five. This is this is a bike made for like proper, you know, multi-day adventures. It would appear. Yeah, I
0: think that's what has been of interest to me because on my mind, sort of in an omnipresent way lately, has just been sort of the intersection of the mountain bike side of the world with gravel. I think a lot of times we talk about the intersection of the road world with gravel, mm-hmm. but the mountain bike side is starting to have a bigger and bigger influence on gravel bike design, in my opinion.
1: Yeah, well, and and I there's been this trend towards bikes that fit like you know you know larger volume two niner tires and so on, and there are some challenges there in terms of geometry. Like it gets you away from you know what is what is my philosophy of, of uh, I want my gravel bike to also be a great road bike, uh, but you know, for applications like this, where it's it's very clearly like it, this is not a weight weenie frame, right? It's got a chromoly fork. Um, it's got, you know, an, an overbuilt aluminum frame. It's got a bunch of bosses on there. This is something that's designed to be loaded up and so on. And for that sort of application... This this idea of a a rigid drop bar mountain bike actually makes a tremendous amount of sense because you want to be able to you know hop on the hoods and you don't qu- care about quick handling and so on you just care about being able to go comfortably in a straight line for hours and hours and hours uh, so I, I kind of like what they're doing here
0: yeah I and mean, I throw this in the the sort of category of like the salsa cutthroat that sort of twenty nine er wheel size gravel bike that's really strongly oriented towards more off-road adventures and obviously get being able to slap really big tires on there allows you to slam through a lot of stuff it's worth noting that the team at far has decided to sell this as a frame set only and it's 695 us dollars with the fork Mm. which is kind of a real accessible price point i think if someone's looking to build up this type of rig
1: yeah And and if you have a bunch of parts kicking around that you want to turn into your you know Uh, adventure bike that you can really go out and abuse and so on. That seems to make a lot of sense as a platform. Uh,
0: Yeah, and as you you mentioned briefly, they've definitely added a lot of eyelets. They've got four up top in the bento box area, and I've reached out to them to get a little clarification on what they're for, and I suspect they've got something very specific up their sleeve.
1: Yeah, probably some sort of custom bag or the like. That'll be interesting to see whenever whenever they uh, announce what that was intended for, because I can't think of any accessories that would use that particular spacing.
0: Not currently anything on the market that I've seen. I also have a question for you that you might know the answer to. So on the fork, they've got four eyelets. Uh-huh. And I know on, say, the thesis that I'm writing, I've got three but they're not equidistant apart from one another. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, like one, because you'll know the answer on the thesis fork, why they're spaced the way they are. So the the, the top two are clearly like, you know, the typical water bottle distance apart. And then you've got a third one that's further apart from the two. Mm -hmm. On this far fork, there's four kind of equidistant apart. What are your thoughts on A, the thesis fork, and then B, what they might be doing on this one?
1: Well, with our fork, uh, what I was what I wanted to do is, is somewhat constrain what could be put on there because you have a a boss being um, uh, riveted into carbon fiber, right? So you want to limit the torsional loads that can be applied to that and kind of constrain people from, say, putting like you know, uh, you know a heavy cage with you know a lot of weight in it. Uh so you know the it's standard water bottle spacing. You can fit a couple bottles up front. You can get um a, a light duty sort of anything sort of cage that you could strap, say like a a stuff stack with like a, a light puffy jacket or something like that. But it's really not intended for heavy loads So on a bike like ours, it's designed to like if you're gonna put a uh, heavier load on there, you wanna put it in the frame bag, you wanna put it um, you know, in a in a handlebar bag or something like that. But really try to centralize the mass um in the main triangle if you can bike like this is designed to take a lot more load so it has four bosses it's a chromoly fork um so you know it's not going to be as uh it's it's already so overbuilt like you don't really have to worry too much about overloading it in the same way that you have to do with any sort of carbon fiber uh components um and so if you're looking to like really load up for like a month or so on the road and and maybe not using ultra gear and so on uh, this is where having something like this um, would be more appropriate. Now you're, it's it's a lot heavier and so on. But you know, when you're using it for this application, you're not quite as concerned about weight as you are for a bike that's also your road bike.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And then with the boost spacing, which I'm most familiar with as a
1: sort of a mountain bike spacing, what's the, what are the ramifications of that? Ah, uh, well, so on the one hand, like mountain bikes have have all moved to it for good reason. Um, it helps to balance out the spoke angles. You basically have more distance uh, between the flanges. So you have less steep spoke angles. And if you, uh, you know, especially if you pair it with an asymmetric rim, you can get those spoke angles more balanced, which means more balanced tensions, which in turn means a stronger, stiffer wheel that has, you know, uh, the spokes are going to uh, be fatigued less with each uh, fatigue cycle as it's rolling and so on. Uh, deep nerdery there. Uh, but but um, in terms of how it affects frame design, well, the, one of the big things is it does... Um, it does change the uh, the minimum Q factor that can be achieved, and so this is this is where like it, it really you know getting into drop bar mountain bike territory. Uh, roadies uh, oftentimes are, are wanting a you know at least the ability to have uh, a narrower Q factor, even if they're not using it. Now there's there's uh, you know a conversation be had about what is the optimal Q factor for a given rider. But at least, if you have the option of going narrower, um, if you need that, then then it's there. So this is something where you're not going to be able to get that that narrower Q factor that you might be used to on the road bike. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah.
0: yeah, it's. I mean, even in their literature, this is an unapologetic drop bar mountain bike. Yeah, which is great. Like, I think the world needs this spectrum of bikes to sort of play against what you want to do as a gravel athlete. Mm-hmm. And there's no right or wrong answer. We, we would never sit here and tell you one bike's better than another because everybody's local terrain is going to be different.
1: Yeah. Well, and, and this is, you know, it's getting out of the realm of having one bike for everything and very much in the realm of one bike that is really tailor-made for a specific subset of applications. And I think that in ter- looking at the geometry and so on, like this is a bike that's made to be loaded up and, and taken deep, deep into the outback.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean there's something there's something always that's always been very aspirational for me about that type of bicycle. Mm-hmm. Honestly, the reason I got drawn into gravel in the first place was just uh dot watching the Tour Divide race and seeing yeah. guys on drop bars doing that and the type of just getting out there mm-hmm. that these bikes are capable with. Frankly, like my daily riding, although it's it's very sort of quote-unquote MTB heavy, I, you know, I still mix in a fair amount of road. So it's possible that if I was on a chassis like this, there could be some limitations in what I like to do here in Marin County. Mm. Have you um,
1: loaded up your bike yet for bikepacking trip?
0: I would say no. Like the bikepacking trips I've been on, I've been on a a mountain bike Uh and I've, I have not fully loaded the bike up. But one of my colleagues at Bike Index has definitely done so with his thesis. He's got the full frame bag on there and has gone out for multi-day stuff. Um, And in talking to him, like you could see as he loaded the bike up, there was challenges in getting the right air pressure for that kind of load Mm -hmm. with like a 47 millimeter tire. Um, So there's a balancing act, I think.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's and you're also you know you're not going to be getting into quite this quite as rugged a terrain as you would get with a, a two nine or by two point two five tire. Uh, yeah, you know for sure that's probably. yeah, the and there's all, there's definitely the
0: you know I find the balance of like an individual rider's personal skill set. Mm-hmm. And what they think is doable on these bikes, because they're so damn capable mm-hmm. that, you know, if you feel like you've got the skills, you're going to throw a lot at it. And I, I know for me, when I load a bike up with bags, I need to take a step back and and just check myself to say like, hey, I've got an extra 15, 20 pounds on this bike. I can't hit the same rock garden or do the same kind of stuff that I would do on a a non-loaded bike.
1: Oh, yeah. You're definitely taking it a little bit easier, choosing your lines and kind of rolling things a little bit more slowly versus the uh, reckless abandon that we usually ride these things with.
0: Yeah, exactly. Well, I know another bike caught your eye this week. That is... A totally different category, almost.
1: Um, so it's it's much more in that uh, in the vein of of the one bike for everything. Uh, this is a, a bike by Gerard Vrumen, um who you know everyone knows from Cervelo and also from Open. He he designs bikes for Three T as well. And this is the new Three T Exploro Race Max. Uh, so a bit of a mouthful, but um, it, this is a bike that I actually find quite interesting. Uh, I think he's done a lot of good things here. Um, you know, clearance for 61 millimeter tires, uh, which is tremendous while at the same time maintaining a geometry that is very much in, in the same kind of endurance road vein as, as, you know, a, a bike like, like our one. Uh, so this is a bike that you could throw road wheels on and it would, you know, give you the, the feel, um, of an endurance road, uh, sort of bike. Uh, it's not going to be a crit machine. You know, it's a 72 degree head angle. Um, the, the trail on it is, is much, uh, is, is a little bit slower than what you would have on say like a, a dedicated, uh, crit racing road bike. Uh, but that's actually not what most people want or need anyways. Uh, so I think he's done a good job here on the geometry, on the tire clearance. Um, there's an aero story here. I think aero stories tend to be a bit overblown on, on gravel bikes, but you know, there's no reason not to pay some attention to it. Uh, that massive down tube is, is quite interesting, um, And the way that it is kind of shielding the bottles and and, uh, creating a more smooth uh, aerodynamic transition between down tube and bottles uh, is interesting. Uh, Other things going on with this bike: double drop stay, which he debuted on the Open Wide, uh, which uh, is a bike that uh, is a little bit more of a dedicated gravel monster and is not—you know—the geometry isn't quite as conducive to road riding as as this uh, the uh, Exploro Race Max is. Um,
0: but yeah. yeah, I have to say the three, the three T has always been a bike that I've been drawn to. I think the visuals, the lines, they're very clean. It's a very attractive bike. And as you noted, one of the things that popped for me, I believe on the, uh, original three T Explorer, it was a single drop stay. Now they've moved to the two dropped stays. Mm-hmm. What, what is the net effect of that? Why are designers moving towards that? And what are the limitations of that?
1: Well, so, I mean, the, the reason behind the drop stay in the first place was simply you have, you know, packaging constraints with, you know, the the rear tire. You know, once you go wider with the rear tire, you have a, a chain ring that you have to fit. You can't really, you know, as you go wider with the tire, you are, um, you know, essentially constraining the space between the tire and the chain ring where the chain stay can exist. So a bike like the, the Specialized Diverge, um, they have a standard kind of straight stay, but it's, it's a solid uh, stay. It's not hollow, and that's, they just made it really, really narrow, uh, and they are able to fit a 2.1. Uh, in this case, I think it's a 2.25, so to, you know, to, to be able to accommodate that sort of volume, you, you have to drop it to some degree. And As far as going double drop, uh, there's no reason why you have to go double drop. Uh, it's just, I, I would imagine, aesthetic, uh, creating that, that visual balance between the two sides of the bike. Uh because the the constraints is really about uh again, you know, fitting the big tire uh when you have the chain ring there. you, know, you have so it doesn't help
0: support creating a greater space having two drop stays. It's really the one that is the the magic.
1: Yeah. Of it. Yeah, there's nothing because there's nothing on the non drive side that would uh be constraining uh you know the path of a straight stay going from the bottom bracket. So it's really about the aesthetics. Right. And interestingly, you know,
0: I noted on that bike, and I think this was on the original model as well, they've got that sort of curve in the seat tube. Is that to accommodate a little more tire clearance as well?
1: Uh, I think, well, so in that case, more, well, tire clearance with uh, the, you know, short chainstays, which is another thing I really like about this, they're, they're going, you know, 415 millimeter chainstays, so well into endurance road territory, um, uh, you know anything in like the 415 to 420 range is you know what i think is is kind of essential to a bike being able to to ride uh like you want would want out of an endurance road bike uh so just yeah. just like as you go bigger volume tire you need to cut out in order to get that i think he's also looking to kind of add to the aero story with this bike as well um and you know it, it does it does do that well without you know any compromises that i can note
0: yeah it's it's certainly it's a there's a pleasingness to the shape of it overall that makes it look a little badass with the great paint jobs they've put on these things yeah yeah Um, yeah one downside i noted it looks like they've got a custom shaped seat post which i'm 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 never been much of a fan of that
1: yeah there's 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 two things that are that are showstoppers for me but it but it depends on how you're setting this up um the the non-round seat post i think is is uh there's, there's a, when your aero story that you're trying to tell with the design starts compromising what you can do with the bike, specifically constraining your ability to use a dropper, uh, you know, that's, that's generally something that, uh, um, I tend, you know, I I want to avoid also like aero seat posts. This is an area that has a ton of turbulence. Uh, I can't imagine that there's any actual aero benefit, uh, associated with these designs, or if it is, it's so trivial as to not be you know not be worth not being able to run a dropper uh and then just like the cable routing looking how that's coming in through the top tube uh this is a bike that i would only really want to run with electronic shifting because there's going to be a lot of binding in the cable but just because of the cable path and that's something that unfortunately a lot of bike companies miss um but you know that's uh with electronic if you're going electronic this that's a non-issue
0: and yeah, I believe a lot of other manufacturers um, regarding the seat posts have been using 27.2 and speccing posts with a little bit of compliance to them as well. So mm-hmm. set aside what what I would agree with you is the obvious shortcoming of not being able to run a dropper, even being able to run a more compliant post. I think has its benefits for certain riders who are really going to push the extreme limits of what this bike is capable for.
1: I I suspect that they've they've designed a good amount of compliance into the seat post. So if you're already looking to go uh, uh, non-dropper seat post, I would imagine that this is entirely fine. Uh, Hopefully they're using a better clamping design. I didn't look uh, too carefully at it. Oh, it looks like it's still one of these kind of shim designs. Uh, So we want to use a little bit of friction paste to make sure it doesn't slip. Uh, But uh, yeah, that's... uh, it is what it is, but the rest of the bike. I mean, there's a lot that I've been thinking about for a while that I've, I see that Gerard has done here, uh, and I got to give him credit for like the geometry and the packaging and things like that. It's uh, one of the more beautiful bikes uh, and one of the more versatile bikes uh, that that I've seen, with the exception of the uh, the dropper issue.
0: Yeah, and it looks like they've added a couple extra extra eyelets on the the down tube water bottle setup, so you can have a little bit of adjustability of where you put your bottles. Mm,
1: yeah. And they don't have – he didn't do eyelets on the fork, which I actually think is fine. There aren't really the accessories out there right now for being able to put uh, things on a fork that doesn't have bosses there. But um, uh, let's just say that there are some things in the works uh, that will make you know, a fork like this able to accommodate some like light-duty bags and so on, but with a, a non-permanent sort of interface on there so you don't have to uh, you know, uh, compromise the carbon.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I've, I've yet to monkey around with attaching bottle cages or anything to my fork as much as it was a feature that I was attracted to, like in, in principle, I've yet to use it for anything.
1: Yeah. It's, I mean, get a custom frame bag first, get ultralight gear, load all your mass in the frame bag, and then, you know, start to, to add, you know, handlebar bag, seat bag, and you're kind of really good for, for a multi-day bike packing trip. You won't be out yeah, for a for month, the- but it'll work for the listener,
0: go back an episode to episode two and you can hear us geek out about bags and I'm sure they'll come up again and again. Yeah. 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 So this week, um, on can't let it go, man, I have been vexed by the knowledge of this S A S F. SF, sorry. Yeah. SF to Los Angeles gravel route mm-hmm. that someone sent me. And I've ridden down the coast a number of times on the road and I highly recommend it. I love it. It's just, I mean, dare I say a spiritual journey down the California coast. I've always found it to just be a great adventure on the road. The the highway one is such a beautiful route down the coast of California. And it's so doable, whether you're um, bike packing or credit card camping along the way, it's been a lot of fun. But as I've gotten to gravel, I've sort of obsessed a little bit about the notion of riding some as much as possible gravel down the coast. And someone sent me this route, and I'm interested to get the listeners' feedback on it if they know any sort of beta about some of the sections. Because I understand sort of going through San Francisco and going over the area referred to as Planet of the Apes by Montero. That's an awesome, and then it looks awesome
1: like, section of single track.
0: Yeah, and then it looks like they get back on the coast and they go down to, I think, Parissima Creek, and they climb up and essentially travel the Mm ridgeline across the peninsula above the Silicon Valley. And I suspect that's
1: doable. I've done it. I don't. It's great. Yeah, okay. You you want 650Bs for sure. Um, Yeah, I imagine that. Yeah, yeah, but it's totally doable. I did a a several day bikepacking trip through there, and uh, all that stuff was a lot of fun. Uh, okay.
0: Up. Great to know. Great to know. I, I kind of assumed as such. It's difficult for me to gauge, like exactly how long on a loaded bike this would take the various sections, because mm-hmm. you can easily and comfortably ride down to LA in seven days. But I certainly don't think you're doing that on this route on gravel.
1: Oh, the elevation as well. I mean you're when you're on the coast is there's not nearly as much elevation as, as when you're riding the uh like the Bay Area Ridge Trail or when you get into San Luis Obispo, like there's lots of ridge lines you can ride. Uh so I'd be interested to see the uh the elevation profile on this thing. Are you able to post it?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I can definitely post a link to this. And it's got um it says 82,000 feet of climbing, but that seems...
1: That seems like a good more... weekend.
0: It's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a good time on the bike. So after you drop through the peninsula, it looks like around kind of Watsonville, you come back on the road and you hug down through Monterey and Carmel and get into Big Sur. And then you go back inland. And I've, I've ridden some of those hills on the road down there through Big Sur. And I know they're super steep off the coast. And that's the area that's been the grayest area because um I just haven't I just don't know a lot of riders in that neck of the woods to kind of give me any info on if if that trail goes through that they that this person has documented or if it's legal, you know, any of these things.
1: I think I think what we're you might be kicking off here is like a crowdsourced uh, San Francisco to LA route and just like getting beta and making making adjustments to the route as needed. That's
0: exactly it. And I would love, I don't know what the right tool is to kind of riff on this stuff. Cause I've found on Strava roots, for example, when I draw a route, it's kind of minted and I don't, I can't really adjust it very easily section by section. Mm -hmm. So I'd love to figure out what the right tool is to start riffing on this. And yeah, we've got a lot of listeners up and down the coast of California who can start chipping in and
1: adding knowledge to this route. Well, if we're going to ask uh, the audience to do this, I think we have to commit to actually riding it at some point. You in? (laughs) I'm in. (laughs) All right. I'm in.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, without going too deep on this, kind of after Big Sur, you get back on the coast for a while, go through Pismo Beach, Uh and it looks like around Santa Barbara, north of Santa Barbara, and it's just It's just north. Yeah. You just start... um, Going on that ridgeline above Santa Barbara, which I, again, know from local athletes down there, it's definitely steep and deep up on that ridgeline above Santa Barbara.
1: Yeah, you'll definitely want plenty of low end for a route like that, especially loaded up. I've, I've ridden, I did mountain bike races there back in the day, and they weren't the best mountain bike trails. I'd imagine they'd be amazing on a gravel bike.
0: Yeah, yeah. And then south of there, you drop back on the one. I don't think there's any kind of way around it. But once you get into Malibu, again, depending on where you want to end up, this route doesn't have you going into the Santa Monica mountains, but there's plenty of rad stuff in Malibu and having in-laws in Topanga, that would probably be my end destination of this particular route. Awesome. All right. So it's been fun. I mean, it's been totally fun to geek out on. And uh, yeah, again, for all the listeners, love to get your input. And Randall and I will riff on like what platform would be the best to build on and maybe get a shared Google Doc together where we can get local riders to give us tips and tricks on, uh, you know, what's doable. And and importantly for me is like how long these sections would take. It's like one thing that is doable but if this is changed into, you know, a, a two-day
1: road section into a three-week off-road <laughs> section, we're going to have to bank some more time. Yeah, that's um, – especially with uh, weeks of hike-a-bike, I uh, want to avoid that at all costs. Yeah, exactly. Uh, what's been on your mind, my man? Uh, so actually somewhat related to this um, is like uh, mullet tire setups. So, uh, okay, what's those, that? So for those who aren't familiar, this is running a different tire front and rear. Um, you see this a lot in mountain biking and for good reason, your front and rear tire are being asked to, to do different things. Your front tire is doing a lot of steering and like heavy braking. Uh, your rear tire is where most of your mass is over. So you want that to have ideally better rolling resistance and you don't need quite as much traction. It's much more straight line traction as opposed to, um, you know, uh, you, yes, you want some side knob of course, but, but it's not as critical. If you lose traction in the rear, you're still going to be able to control the bike. So, um, for example, like I'm running right now um, a WTB Venture Fronts, which is a file tread in the middle and then some some chunkier knobs on the side, and you know it rolls quite efficiently, uh, surprisingly so for a, a tire of that volume, 47 mil. Uh, it's, so it's good on the road, uh, but then you know at the air pressures I'm running on those nice wide rims, uh, those side knobs engage really early, so I can lean the bike through a corner and it's going to grab uh, the byway in the rear not for everybody uh this is a tire that um you know i feel comfortable with in part because uh i enjoy drifting uh it's a it's a solid um you know it's a slick in the middle and then you have kind of smaller knobs on the side uh so you don't get quite as much traction and so you really need to like you know sit in the saddle and pedal smoothly going up um and uh you know really have good control in the drift when you're going through a corner Um, but that said, like I'm riding oftentimes 15, 20 miles on the road to hit the the trails that I want to hit. And so I want a bike that is going to feel, you know, pretty much like a road bike on the way out there uh, and be enjoyable on the road, uh, as well as on the trails.
0: Can I unpack something that you said? Can you, can you drill into what you said about air pressure and the effect on the knobs?
1: Yeah. So, well, it's a mix of air pressure and rim width. So, like on a forty seven mil tire um, six fifty by forty seven uh, I actually did a little a little study myself um, I, I tried rim widths between twenty four and twenty nine and I found that like the twenty seven plus was kind of the minimum width necessary to allow that tire to be run at the lowest tire pressures possible, like right up to the point where you're risking hitting the rim on rocks and so on, um, and still not having any tire squirm. Uh, which in turn means that you can run those low pressures. Uh, you're getting a bigger contact patch. The side knobs are engaging sooner, um, in part because you have lower pressure, and also in part because the shape of the tire is changing as the, the base widens. Those side knobs are, are going to kind of rotate you know, more towards the, the edge uh, where they're able to engage much sooner.
0: Yeah, I guess that makes sense. So if you have a narrower rim, which was the sort of tradition many years ago, yeah, the tire itself kind of gets pinched and rounded around a little bit more than if you have a wider rim, it's kind of sitting more like a U than an O.
1: Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a light bulb. And so really like you want that, that wider base of support. And you see this happening across the board. Um, you know, there's, there's really no reason for anyone to be riding a rim that is narrower than 21 millimeters, including roadies. Um, like for example, we our road rims are 22 millimeters internal which is ideal for a 28 to 30 millimeter tire, which in turn is like what, you know, unless you're um, an elite racer on a really smooth course and you're, you know, there's a, a ton of climbing. So you're trying to save every last gram possible. You're going to be faster on that setup and you're going to be able to run lower pressure. That lower pressure in turn affects uh, tire constructions. So now the tires can be made in a way that they're more supple and so on. It's just, uh, yeah. Rim width is one of these trends that, uh, uh, it has been taken to extremes in some cases, um, but it, it's definitely like, one of the, the areas that I, I still see too, too often missed in specs. Like I, I see a bike and the bike is otherwise just like, really well done, but then they have some narrower, you know, narrow rim on there that's just going to compromise the ride quality.
0: Yeah, I think that gives the listener a lot to think about. And then one other question on the mullet setup. Are yeah. you seeing people use larger tires up front and, and narrower in the back? I kind of remember that from late 90s mountain biking. We were seeing a little bit of that action.
1: Yeah, I, I, I don't see that happening a ton. I think it makes a ton of sense. Uh, and in fact, it's one of the things that I would do uh, in order to, say, get a slight geometry tweak. Um, At the same time that you're also getting, say, like more cush up front, you know, you run a a higher volume tire at lower pressure up front where uh, your rolling resistance is going to be less impacted because you have less mass over the front axle when you're in a straight line just hammering on the road. And then you go with something, you know, slightly lower volume in the rear that's that's more uh, a little bit smoother, a little bit slicker um, and at a slightly higher pressure. Um, still, still low pressure, but, but slightly higher. And then that gives you kind of the, the rolling resistance. You get the best of both worlds.
0: Yeah, and I presume from a frame and fork design perspective that it's pretty easy to have a higher volume area on the fork than it is on the rear of the frame.
1: Yeah, the only real constraints on the fork, uh, on fork design would be, um, you know, issues with toe overlap. Um, So like, as you go higher volume, um, this isn't actually a a, a design concern really on the fork. Uh, It's more like the the head angle and the trail and and the um, the, uh, front center uh, measurements uh, from the crank spindle to the center of the front axle. As you go higher volume, you can have more risk of toe overlap. Though this gets me on one of my other uh, topics that, that I'm always talking about, which is proportional crank length. This is usually just an issue on smaller sizes, but if people if you know if you're running cranks that are proportional to your saddle height, which unfortunately the big uh, component brands don't offer, um, but if you have proportional cranks, this is going to reduce your crank length sub- substantially and eliminate that toe overlap issue.
0: Yeah, essentially, you know, these discussions tend to illuminate how many factors go into bicycle design overall mm. and even though you can do things or you can spec things, there are trade-offs across the board. And I think that's, you know, it's it's a common theme on the podcast and just in the industry of the constraints and decisions that product designers need to make. And riders need to be informed about the products they're purchasing and make sure that it can achieve their end goals of getting them where they want to ride.
1: Yeah yeah well, and this is one of the reasons why like we we stopped offering frame sets because we ended up people ended up getting um what they what they thought they wanted uh but then not being happy with it <laughs> because there's yeah. all these like component compatibility and, and, and other sorts of issues that inevitably arise when you you don't have kind of the the deep uh the ability to go deep on the technical details like uh somebody yeah. who's you know a product manager does.
0: Yeah, exactly. My my hope in these conversations is we help the listener just understand the world of possibilities, whether it's in this conversation, or in the deep dive interviews I do uh, every other week on the gravel ride. My goal from the beginning two years ago was just to help people make these decisions. Because I struggled when I bought my first mountain uh, gravel bike. And I ended up revisiting a lot of the choices I made in getting my second gravel bike and my third. And I've been happier and happier the more informed I've become as a consumer of gravel bike components and frames. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So thanks for the time this week, Randall. For sure.
1: Always a pleasure, Craig.
0: See you next time. Yeah, we'll talk to you soon. All All right, cheers. Take care. Big thanks to you for joining us this week. I hope you got a little bit out of that conversation. If you'd like to contribute to the conversation, we've set up a voicemail number at 415-843-1701 or hit us up on social media. We'd love to hear from you and have you drive where we go with the In The Dirt show. If you aren't already a subscriber to the show, please take a minute and hit subscribe as it's a great indicator as to how well we're doing as a podcast. As always, ratings and reviews are greatly appreciated and we look forward to seeing you next week with our interview show. Until next time, here's to finding some dirt under your wheels.